Mark 1 verse 16 says, Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he, that is Jesus, saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I'll make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. We have been just working our way into this new series in the Gospel of Mark. And uh, where we left off in the last section was Jesus' first ever you know, the, his, the beginning of his ministry, the beginning of his preaching, in which he announced that the kingdom of God has come, um, that his, his arrival on planet Earth and the beginning of him preaching, the beginning of his ministry, which would culminate in his death, resurrection, and ascension, that it was, it was a new epoch, a new era in history. And he announces it. And the very next thing he does, since he's arrived to be king, he begins to call people to give him their allegiance. And so we're thinking this morning about this whole issue of calling. What is Jesus doing? How does he call us? And what does it mean to experience the calling of God in your life? And how should you respond? This is what I want us to think about this morning. And obviously, this is a huge, huge theme for the Christian life, because if there's there's one thing that describes what you are when you become a Christian and continually through the Christian life. It's that you become a follower of Jesus. You become a disciple of him as your master. So the issue of calling, of the summons, of the voice of God to you personally is very important. And I want us just to think about that this morning. And a few reasons why I think this is incredibly important for us. One is, is that the calling of God is not generic. It's it's an individual call. The Bible is very clear on this. In Ephesians 1, it talks about how God chose us in Him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world. In other words, this is not a broad invitation, like when you make a Facebook invite and, put, and select every friend on your contact list. It's not like a broad invitation. There is a sense in which... The call to, to follow Christ is like that. But, but for those of you who hear the voice of God and, and the summons to follow him, it is an individual thing. He chose you in him before the foundation of the world, the Bible says. Elsewhere in Luke 15, Jesus puts it like this. He says that he, ta- he uses the analogy of a shepherd with his sheep. You remember this, how he says that if a shepherd had a, a hundred sheep and the one goes astray, he says that he'll leave the 99 and go in search of the one. It's a very, very individual thing. He has an interest in you personally, he's saying. And then he says that upon finding it, he says there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents and over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. In other words, that God has a very peculiar interest in you. It's an individual thing, the call of God. Another aspect of this which is so vital for us to understand is that this is lifelong. This is not just to those of you, I'm not just speaking to those of you here who 
are yet to make the decision about whether to follow Christ or not. I recognize that some of you are not Christian, but most of us are Christian. And the call that we're speaking about this morning, this summons to make Jesus Lord and to be his disciple, is not a momentary thing. It's not something that just happens once in your life. It is rather a lifelong experience. I know this even from my personal life. I, <clears throat> um, you know, I, I first prayed to become a Christian at a very young age. I, remember, I do remember it. I was only four years of age, but I remember it vividly, speaking with my parents and praying. And how strongly I felt the call of God then, I couldn't really say to you. I just believed it was true. It was very simple to me. And as the years went on, I would say that I've never, never failed to hear the call of God in one sense, that God has always made it clear to me that I'm His and continue to pull me in that direction. And then that's been punctuated by moments in my life where I felt a particularly intense um, sense of the calling of God in new ways. Like, for example, again, at a fairly young age, I felt that God spoke to me about becoming a pastor. And uh, it, was not, it was not something that I felt that came from my own uh, ambition or desire, that it seemed to me to come from something exterior to me. It seemed to me to be the God kind of whispering into my spirit. <clears throat> and there were various other moments in my life up to now, including the initiative to uh, be involved in planting the church and calling people to join me in this as a response to God's command, we felt. And so I suppose the way you can think of it is that, you know, when it's a, it, you know to, to extend the, the analogy of fishing, which Jesus brings up here, you ever watched a fisherman with a particularly difficult fish? He casts his hook into the water. And if a fish bites the hook, it begins to reel the thing in. But if you're fishing for a very strong fish, a fish that might um, have a lot of its own will and desire to be free, that can take time to reel that fish in. And there'll be, you know, it can take more than an hour with some fish that you, you are, you're pulling it in for a while and then you give it some slack. And then you reel it in and pull it in a bit further. And with every passing minute, you're hoping to exhaust the fish of any independence and autonomy and gradually gain lordship over the fish, right? And the life of the Christian is like that. When you first hear the call of God in your life, which theologians describe as the irrevocable call of God, he doesn't, he doesn't call you and then change his mind. He calls you, and they also call it the irresistible call of God, because when he summons you by name, there's really no escape. He gets his hook in your mouth. For the rest of your life, you will feel the tug of the Spirit of God. And there'll be moments where you're moving with the will of, the, of God in your life, and you're moving towards Him. There are moments where He is like, go slap, you think this is fantastic. I'm, I'm, I'm off, you know. <laughs> and you forget. You forget who you are. You forget what you're about. You forget your primary submission to Jesus. But then, again, the pull comes, and He brings you back into alignment. And so what we're thinking about today in terms of the call of God is not something that just happens once in your life. It's something that you will feel continually until you're face to face with Jesus. He lands you on the deck of his boat and uh, he won't beat you around the head and club <laughs> you to death. But <clears throat> it's, a, it's an individual call. It's by name. 
It's a lifelong call. And here's something interesting about it as well, before we, we get into this a little bit more deeply. This, I would lo- want you to notice that this is Christ, Christ's strategy for changing the world. How interesting that after announcing the kingdom has come, the first thing he does is begin to work in the lives of a few individuals and making them his disciples. Now, this is, this is so important because it's, it's strange. It's strange because it doesn't need to be this way. I could easily imagine alternative ways that Jesus could have, could have extended his rule on earth. He could have come with a sword. He could have come in some other way to make his kingdom spread. But he chose this way. One by one, person by person. It's strange because it seems also so slow. You know it from your own life, don't you? Maybe there are moments when you felt like the transforming power of God in your life was very rapid. But most of the time, we are frustratingly stubborn people. And the work of God in our life seems to take an age. But Jesus was all right with that. He was okay to settle in for the long haul with these men. For the slow work of individual transformation of life. And not the hurried work of crowd gathering. I also find it really interesting when you think about this as Christ's strategy that it relies so heavily upon us. What I mean by that is that he didn't need to use us to do the work that he wants to do in the world, but for reasons that I still cannot fully understand, Jesus has decided to make it his aim to include us in his mission. There's a psalm that reflects on this fact. When he thinks about the creation of God, the power of God, the greatness of God in Psalm 8, he says, when I look at your heavens, and the work of your fingers, the moon and stars which you've set in place, he asks the question, what is man? Or what is a man that you are mindful and think about him? And the son of man that you care for him, yet you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands, he says. So he's saying, there's, there's great mystery in this. For some reason, the God who made all things decided that he would give us his authority. And what we are seeing when Jesus calls disciples is an extension of that very thing. He calls you into his family so that he can appoint you and give you purpose and mission in the world, which is an extension of his purpose and his mission. And he doesn't need to do this, but he chooses to. This is what the call of God is, what we're seeing in the lives of these few disciples when Jesus calls them. Now, let's let's. Let's begin to reflect on what this, this means for us. Here's the first thing I want you to understand. How unlikely Christ's choices are. That Jesus chooses unlikely people, relies upon people that you and I would not choose. It says here that he was walking along Galilee and he saw Andrew and Simon, Simon and Andrew, because they were, and they were fishermen. 
And again, it says about the same about James and John. They were, the, they were fishermen. They were mending their nets, right? And I want you to think about this for just a moment. Jesus has just announced a kingdom that will, and you know, as we learn more about the teaching of Jesus, Jesus has extraordinary ambition for his kingdom. It's a kingdom that will change the world and which has, has changed the world. The spread of Christ's rule is extraordinary. Just yesterday I was uh, hearing um, Tim Keller speak and he was saying, he was describing how when you consider other major religions in the world, most of them have a geographical focus. You can identify the, the bulk of Islam in a certain region of the world, in the 1040 window, and particularly in the Middle East. And you can identify where the bulk of Hindus live and where the bulk of uh, Buddhists live and so on. He says, when, when you look at this statistically, it's not true about the Christian faith. The Christian faith is almost evenly spread across the entire globe in terms of percentages of people who believe. And it says a lot about the faith that we, we believe in. It is, it, is a, it, is a, it is a belief for humanity, and it expresses what Jesus always said, that this was a kingdom that would change the whole world. Now, in view of his ambition to change the world, ask yourself this question. What kind of people would you expect him to summon into his kingdom as he's beginning this new movement? And the answer should be influences. Gifted people, people with extraordinary personal ability and presence and leadership. A couple of times in my life, I've, had, um, I've been in the same room or vicinity as the Beckham family. Now, it's wasted on me because I have no particular interest in football and even less interest in the Spice Girls. <laughs> but, but we found ourselves in their presence, not deliberately, I should also add. Um, the once was in, uh, in an airport in L.A. when my wife saw these children in the airport and thought, they are beautiful children. Who do they belong to? And she glanced around and saw a guy in a beanie and saw the parents, and obviously it all became plain why they were so beautiful. And um, So we saw them, and they were in, in the airport. They were, they were on the same plane as us, actually. And, uh, but they were whisked along in a, in a golf cart and had special treatment, you know, from, from uh, security desk to their lounge. Or, you know, they were whisked along. And even when we were boarding the plane, you saw them being ushered by security guards in the side entrance. And the second time that I was in the same room, it was with Victoria Beckham and some of her children. And I'd gone to the Reebok store in Covent Garden and needed some, uh, some weightlifting shoes, of all things, uh, to help me with my, my bizarre geometry. And... Um, <laughs> Some of you understand, most of you don't. Um, but anyway, I needed a certain type of shoe. And um, I, was, I spent a little while there. And then uh, Victoria Beckham rolled in, and it was like a little whirlwind. She, her kids were trying on everything, and the shopkeeper said to me, um, they can take whatever they want for free uh, because they are ambassadors for the brand. And my first thought was, that's really not fair. <laughs> you know... They're much wealthier than I am. And uh, why is it that they get the free stuff and I don't? And of course, the answer is obvious. Advertisers know something that we all know, that you know, ambassadors need to be people. Who, ambassadors will give you success because they'll represent your brand well. And therefore, you know, it really would make most sense, wouldn't it? Uh, that if Jesus is beginning a new world-changing movement, that what he needs are ambassadors, people of extraordinary good looks or extraordinary 
giftedness or charisma or all these kinds of things. And uh, certainly Christians sometimes buy into that idea. Uh, you know, you can go to churches where you'll only see the beautiful people at the front. And, you know, that's clearly not true of this church. But, um, but, but we, the worship band accepted. You guys are gorgeous. Uh, but... And we try and hide Cody with that hat. and then. Uh, <laughs> the Bible's very clear that God operates by a very different logic. And uh, in particular that he's interested in the weak and the despised and the powerless as his agents of change. And this begins when you become a Christian. Jesus goes after you if you are sick, not if you're healthy. He wants people who, are, who understand their brokenness. And it continues through the Christian life. Those whom Christ most honors with his power, presence, and gifts, and call are usually the least likely people. And it's actually a biblical principle that runs through the entire Bible. A verse I often read, uh, but which I love so much, is to do with the calling of David. You remember how he was, he was just a lowly shepherd. Actually, one of the despised class in many regards, because they lived... Rough lives. And uh, Samuel the prophet was told, go to the family of, uh, of Jesse and go and anoint one of his sons to be, to be the next king of Israel. And he went into Jesse's home and the first thing he saw was the, the amazing oldest brother, uh, Eliab, his name was. And Samuel's first thought to himself was, surely the Lord's anointed is, is before me. That's what he, he thought. And then God whispered into his heart these amazing words. He said, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. He says, the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And so the runt of the litter, David, the youngest son, the one who everyone is ignoring, is the one that God wanted to be the next king of his Precious people, the people of Israel. And this theme continues through the Bible. Is so many examples. Moses. Moses' call, his main call, is to be a speaker of God's word. To announce to Pharaoh the release of God's people. To communicate to God's people the law of God and the rule of God. And what is it? What is his handicap? He has a speech impediment. I think there's so much that encourages me in that. Um, that God uses the weak. And this continues through the Bible when he needs a deliverer. When Midian is oppressing God's people, he does not look for a man with um, a track record of being an extraordinary leader or commander or general. He goes and finds a man who is hiding because he's afraid. And his name is Gideon. And this continues when he wants a man who will communicate the love of God through the death of Christ to a cold world, to the Gentile world. He goes and finds a murderer, the Apostle Paul, and makes him an apostle. This continues to happen time and time again all through the Bible. Paul actually reflects on this when he's writing to one of the churches. 
He's writing to the church in Corinth. And he says, consider your calling, brothers. And he could write this to us, couldn't he? He says, not many of you were wise. That's what the Greeks were interested in, wisdom. Not many of you were wise, which means well-educated and, and capable and articulate in your, in your ability to understand logic and philosophy and all these things. He says, not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. Then he says, not many were powerful, which is what the Jews were interested in. Whether spiritual power or position or status. He says, not many of you were like that. He says, not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And you ask yourself this question, why? And I don't think the answer is that mysterious. It's there, actually, in what I just read, that no human being might boast in the presence of God. If God chose the glamorous, the beautiful, the powerful, the strong, to extend his kingdom, then we might think that it, would, it was on the basis of our ability that this thing was a success. But the fact that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ began and has continued through its long-running history to impact the world through people who are basically unqualified means that Jesus alone gets the glory. What does this mean? Uh, well, here's one thing you should understand, that, that God is very interested in overturning the idols of our, of our age. And he does it here even in the calling of these particular men. He overturns the idol of status and wealth. Because every culture is plagued with prejudices in which the privileged gain more privilege. And the lowly generally are despised and looked down upon. And unfortunately, this persists. There's no culture that can escape this, really. Because it's part of, it's just humanity, isn't it? That we, this is the way we work, it's the way we think, it's the way we operate. And this is, explains many of the things that we see in our society. Why so few um, black people might gain high positions of power. Or why, you know, we struggle to see the weak and the despised and in, in areas gaining positions of prominence. And it's, it's often to do with this inherent prejudice and the preference for people who already have power to gain more. Why is it that so often our government is, is stuffed full of Etonians? And, you know, it's no great mystery. This is just the way the, the human heart works. It's a sin at work in us. And it's an opposite principle to the way the Bible works. Now, why is it that so few people with a Birmingham accent are on TV? <laughs> you know, it's, a great, it's no mystery, actually. Um, and Jesus, you know, as, as Paul told us, he, he chooses the foolish, he, he chooses the weak, to, and he chooses, he chooses us to shame the strong. I love this. It's so precious. And he does it to overturn the idol, one of the great idols of, our, of human, humanity, which is the idol of status and of wealth. Jesus says elsewhere that it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom. Because basically his big, his big obstacle is pride, it's self-sufficiency. If he, could, if he could understand his weakness, which his wealth constantly, constantly obscures, so he doesn't see it clearly. But if he could see it for a moment, he'd understand his need for Jesus. But he doesn't. He thinks, I've got everything I need, and therefore he doesn't turn to Christ. So you see how the problem of status and wealth, and power and wealth, these things actually obstruct people's route to Christ 
and whether they'll be used by Christ ultimately. He also demolishes another idol, which is that of intelligence and education. We are obsessed with intelligence and IQ in our day and age, aren't we? I think about, I was just listening to some of the, the movies and, 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 and television shows which uh, honor this. You think about something like Goodwill Hunting. Its whole, its whole storyline is premised on an, an outlandishly gifted mind. Brilliantly intelligent man. And that's, that's the interest of the film, isn't it? And then you think about a series like Suits. You know, the lead character has a photographic memory and, and can sort of outthink others because of it. And you think about the imitation game and the obsession we have and interest in, you know, Alan Turing's genius is the reason that film is so interesting, as well as the drama of the, the war against the Nazis and so on. You think about a beautiful mind and John Nash, the mathematician, his extraordinary mind. And go on and on. There's so many films and dramas because we're obsessed with genius, with IQ, with intelligence, with all these kinds of things. And, and, and we know that it also can open doors if you have the right education, if you have the right, the right uh, grades and, and all these kinds of things. And in the world, that's true. And the result is, I think increasingly in our day and age, that we feel more and more stupid and unqualified and badly educated to be of any use to anyone. And, and that's an, un, an unfortunate result, isn't it? But I love how here's Jesus. He chooses these men, Andrew, Simon, John, James, these, uh, these fishermen. And later on, a few years later, when they actually begin being apostles, when Jesus leaves them to the job in, in the book of Acts, one of the earliest things that happen is that two of these apostles, Peter and John, heal a man who's a cripple, and then they begin to preach to the crowd, and many come to faith, and they're called before the government, the Jewish governmental authorities, the Sanhedrin, the council, all men of very high status, very uh, elite education, and they're called before these men, and you've got to remember what they are. These are lowly Peter and John. And this is Luke's comment. He says, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, that's not their analysis, that is Luke's description. Luke was a doctor, so maybe he felt he had one up on them. But he says they were uneducated common men. He says they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. I think the call of Christ goes against any number of other idols as well. He'd go against the idol of our age with the obsession with youth. You're never too old to be called into the kingdom or to be used by God. He goes against our idol of looks. I think we of all generations are being raised to believe that your appearance is one of the most important things about you if you are to be successful in this world because we are more visually obsessed than ever. And it's interesting that that clearly was not a criteria for Jesus choosing his disciples. It's not that we know what they look like, but it's just of no interest to Mark or the apostles, is it? The only hint we have about looks is what Isaiah says about Jesus, that he had no form or majesty that would draw us to him, that there was nothing particularly impressive about his appearance. We think about the idol of, of 
of personality and how much we honor charisma and personality types. And none of that seems to be at play here in the calling of the apostles, the calling of these disciples. And none of that comes into play in Jesus' calling of you. And here's the, here's the implication of what I'm saying in terms of Jesus' unlikely choice. You can put it negatively and positively. If we put it negatively, it's the things that you think qualify you to be of use to God are actually and a disadvantage. It's not that God won't use them or won't use you. It's that you had better repent of the pride that's latent in you, in your abilities or gifts or looks or intelligence or any of these things. Because, why? So that no human being might boast. That's the negative way to put it. The positive way is to put it like this. That whatever reason you discount yourself, Jesus makes no mistakes. And I want to underline this for you. You might think of yourself as as unworthy of either becoming a Christian or of being used by Jesus when you are a Christian. And that would go against everything I know about the work of God through the Scriptures and the calling of Jesus, even of these men here in Mark 1. This is Jesus' unlikely choice. I want you to think now about the hindrances to obedience. Because one thing that struck me as I was thinking about this was how quickly they responded. It says immediately they left their nets and followed him. And again, it says about the other two brothers, it says immediately he called them and they left their father. And I wonder what might stop you. What are the hindrances that might stop you either becoming a Christian or invocation and calling and obedience to Jesus in your day-to-day life? What are the things that would stop you from an out-and-out, complete commitment and devotion to Jesus with everything that you are? And I think we can break this down in a couple of ways. We can think about as potential downsides and actual downsides. The potential ones are the things that we anticipate, the fears that control our decision-making when we think about the call of God in our lives. And I just want to list a few of them to you, these potential downsides. There's the fear of man. To become a Christian or to commit your life more fully to God and become more sincerely and fully devoted to Him is often to open your life up to to criticism, to a loss of credibility, to a loss of social acceptance. If you doubt that, Just go to work and tell everyone at work tomorrow that you're a Christian. I dare you. It's especially the case, this fear of man, if to follow Christ would occasion lifestyle changes, new social habits, new career potentially, new relationships. And when there are decisions you have to make, a new course of life, and you know that people will not approve of it. The fear of man is a very potent thing, a controlling thing. Does fear stop you from following Christ? Another fear is the fear of lack. Now obviously I think this would have been true, or could have been true if they thought about it for more than two seconds in these fishermen, because they were abandoning their careers. We call it this day when we think about people who live with no guarantee of financial security. We call it living by faith. I love that expression. It means that you have no safety net. You're just living in trust that God will provide. 
And these men did that from the moment Jesus called them. They lived by faith because Jesus had no guaranteed income. What kind of income did he have? The only clue we had was that there were certain people, and particularly, I understand, wealthier women who would support what he was doing. And the same can be true for any of us. Whether to become a Christian or to follow the call of Christ in your life more fully, it could mean a change of job. It could mean a change of location. You know, If we're to be a church that plants churches, that might literally mean that some of you need to leave your jobs and go find work elsewhere. Leave your home, move to a new location. Would you do it? Would you do it in obedience to the summons of Christ? Would you do it with the nudgings of the Holy Spirit in your life? Or would fear of lack, the fear of not having enough, the fear of not being able to put your children in the right school or any of these things, would that, would that be a hindrance to you? Would it be an obstacle such that you would say no to Jesus and remain in the status quo? You can think about many other occasions when this might happen. Think about how for some people, you know, if you live in a position where you're in a place of dependence on someone else, maybe a spouse who is the main provider, who doesn't believe in Jesus or whose, whose heart is, is split, perhaps. Or if you have, uh, you're dependent upon parents. And it may be true for those of you who are students. And your parents would not approve of you making decisions for Christ. Then the fear of lack, the fear of what if my support was cut off, can be a controlling fear, can't it? And the fishermen it must have made a very quick decision, but they must have weighed that up in that moment. You think about the fear of missing out. Wow, this is, a, this, is, this is huge again in our day and age. This is something that is, I think, one of the most, the most deadly things that Christians face in their discipleship to Jesus. Because we, of all generations, have a greater window into the kind of life and lifestyle that you can live and also more potential to live it. Disposable income and all that kind of thing. You only have to spend a couple of moments scrolling through the Instagram explore feed to see lives and lifestyles that you think, oh, I'd like to do that. I'd like to go there. That looks fun. And to follow Jesus might mean that you have to say no to certain things that you might, you know, to a certain way of life or pursuits that are in conflict with the call of Christ. And the fear of missing out is a potent one, but it's actually not a new thing. The New Testament calls it the love of the world. It's not that we aren't to love the world the way God does, to have compassion, an extraordinary love for people, but the love of the world as a system, in terms of the things it can offer you, the life and lifestyle, the pleasures it can give. When you love the world more than you love Jesus, then you're in a deadly place. And all of these things must have tumbled through their minds when they were making this this, this decision about whether to follow Jesus. You think about the actual downsides. That was all just potential ones. Think about the actual ones. Following Christ called for immediate sacrifices. It may be true for you. You think here how these men abandoned their own father, Zebedee, in the boat. He's named for a reason. Possibly because he became a Christian at some later point himself and was still known to the believers. I suspect that's the main reason, but at the time, they abandoned him. 
And you think about the cultural pressures that must have been at work there. The honor of parents, plus the expectation that sons brought up by a father would walk in his footsteps and take on the family business. And all of that, they turned their backs on immediately. This was an actual, concrete sacrifice that these men made because of the summons of Jesus Christ on their, on their lives. A stark choice indeed. And it may be the same that's true for you. Family or relational sacrifices that you have to make if you want to follow Jesus. It could be other concrete things, to leave your job, as I said earlier, or to change your path in order to devote yourself to Christ. It could be leaving a person. It could be leaving a particular relationship. I want to ask you, you know, we spoke first about the enormous privilege of the call of God on us who are unworthy, but then also we are struck, aren't we, by... Well, what about the reasons to say no? And you have all kinds of hindrances in your life that stop you either from making that initial decision to be a follower of Jesus or indeed in following Christ to obey him in the way that you know he's calling you to obey. I want to close by thinking about the compelling reasons why we can obey or should obey. And really it's there in that 17th verse when Jesus says to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And it seems to me there are two powerful reasons why every hindrance that might stop you from obedience to Christ should be overturned and why obedience to him should be immediate and unquestioning. Here's the first reason. It's because of the personal draw to Jesus himself. He says, follow me. Now, I I want to stress this because being a Christian is not about following an ideology. Ideologies come and go. The imaginations of men about a way of changing the world or making the world better. And they come and go. Christianity is not fundamentally an ideology. Nor is it a religion commonly understood in the sense of a dull, monotonous, restrictive way of living. Jesus was not calling these men to religion. There was plenty of that around at the time. Nor is it a call to a path of self-improvement. Their lives were going to change, but you have to understand that it wasn't follow me and become your best self. Which is, the, which is the motive of so much life change in our day, isn't it? But what the call was, was a call to Jesus himself. His authority, his purity, his person. The power that he carried in himself. The love that they felt from him to them. And it's the same thing that would compel you to give him your life more fully. I think that the closest way we can think about this by analogy is like what you see when people fall in love. I don't know, I think it was Shakespeare who described falling in love as a temporary madness. Because people who are in love often do very reckless things, things they wouldn't otherwise do. They move countries. They 
go against family. They sometimes go against friends. They'll give up jobs. They'll do any number of huge, reckless things because they are overwhelmingly compelled by the draw of love. And the call to Christ when he says, follow me, is, is a lot like that, with the difference that it's not a temporary madness. In fact, if it has been temporary for you, and speak for, particularly to those of you who are Christians, whose love has grown cold, then there is nothing more urgent in your life than that that love be rekindled. You remember how Jesus speaks to one of the churches, the church in Ephesus in the book of Revelation. And he says, he, he commends them. He says, I, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake and you've not grown weary. He says, there's so many things about you. You're tireless, you're faithful, you're dogged, you've got grit. But he says, but I have this against you that you've abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. Is it the case that the reason why you struggle to obey Jesus is because you do not love him enough? And Christ wants you to hear his voice again in a fresh way. Follow me. He's not calling you to an ideology, a religion, a path of self-improvement, any of those things. He's calling you to himself. It is Jesus. That's the first compelling reason. And the last one is this. It's because of the extraordinary pull and privilege of the mission itself. He says, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. Now, it might not sound particularly impressive. But I want you to think about this for a moment. Think about this from the from the perspective of these disciples themselves for a second, all they could see in that moment, they're stood in their boats, they're hearing Jesus speak to them, and possibly all they could see from their tiny, limited perspective were the obstacles that loomed large. And, you know, as things would unfold in being disciples of death, those obstacles would loom larger. It would include potential death, right? It's very hard for them to see the end of their story in that particular moment. They can't possibly see where this is going to lead to. It's very much an act of faith. But for us, looking at this with the eyes of historians, looking back upon what happened in this moment when Simon and Andrew and John and James made the decision they made, do any of you doubt that they made the right call? I was reading one... Uh, preacher's commentary on this, Kent Hughes, and he, he put it like this. He said it meant for them an ex immensely expanded life. The horizon of these fishermen's lives was bound by the margins of Galilee. It's not a very big lake. He says, by and large, they knew little more than the deck of their boat, the currents of the lake, and the handful of people in the marketplace. And it may be the same for you, even if you think you have Wonderful life prospects and life ambitions, really. In the grand scheme of things, they may not add up to much more than the deck of a boat and the people in the marketplace. It says, then Christ came and how their world changed. In place of Galilee came the world. John was to become bishop of Ephesus. Amazing, isn't it? 
This fisherman became the most prominent pastor in the city, the great city of Ephesus. One of the greatest cities in the world. Peter went to Rome. Andrew went as far as the borders of Russia. Their hearts were enlarged to take in the whole world. Their minds, once circumscribed and committed to the smallest interest, now overflowed with deep thoughts. They became theologians, thinkers, sociologists, psychologists, and strategists, all because of the gospel. And it's true. You only have to read some of the letters they wrote or read of the deeds they did to know how greatly their lives were enriched by their discipleship to Jesus. And this is the privilege, friends. I know it's often so difficult to see. When Christ is calling you, you could think about all the things that you might lose. But the compelling reason is not only because he is compelling and authority is compelling in itself, but also because of what he's calling you into. There is nothing so grand, so awesome, so life-consuming, so joy-giving as being involved in the mission of God in this world. And I want to ask you, what's so important that that is not compelling enough for you? I'll read a final verse before we close. In Titus, which happens to be one of the smallest books in the Bible. In Titus 2, he speaks about Christ who gave himself up for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. To be a disciple of Jesus is a twofold thing. It's firstly to be redeemed. It's to be freed. It's to be enter into the experience of grace in which God's kindness is lavished upon you and no longer is your sin held against you. That's what it means to be redeemed. But that is not the end of it. You're redeemed for a purpose. You're redeemed, he says, so that you can be zealous for good works, which basically is another way of saying so you can obey Jesus. Give him your life. Follow his call. Can we bow our heads and pray? Jesus, we thank you that your Holy Spirit speaks to us. That we can hear your voice. I pray, Lord, that the words follow me will ring again in every set of ears here. We know that for some, Lord, it means the greatest decision of life, whether to give our lives to you, whether to step off the boat and to start to walk in your paths. For others of us, Lord, it's, it's a more modest decision. Just obedience this day. Just remembering that we're your disciples, remembering what our lives are meant to be about. Whatever it is, Lord, I pray that the Holy Spirit will now brood upon us and speak to every heart. We thank you, Lord, that as you said through Paul, that you, you gave yourself for us to redeem us. And Lord, as we 
as we eat the bread and drink the wine now, we want to remember that you possess our lives, that you, you are Lord. And eat and drink our privilege as your children, so that, Lord, we can also then offer you our lives for thee. And pray for greater power upon people in our church to give themselves to you more fully, to offer themselves in obedience, to become fishers of men, to be effective in, in the calling, in our calling for you. Come, Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.